the first readings from the book of Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, reading from verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, and the third, the first day. And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seeds according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, and there was the third day. And I'm still going. Firsabolo? That's cut them? Yeah. Acha. Down your bad. <laughs> Sorry, that was Hindi. <laughs> the next reading comes from, from John, chapter 1, which on these Bibles is on page 737, and on these it's on page 1,646. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. I want to share with you some gripping uh, opening lines. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Does anyone know where that's from? A Tale of Two Cities, one of uh, Charles uh, Dickens' most famous works, most famous opening lines. Here's another one for you. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. (laughs) Pride and Prejudice. I'm told if you're going to watch it rather than read it, this is the one to watch with Colin Firth playing Mr Darcy. Uh, Slightly less sort of literary... Uh, but certainly no less popular. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of Number 4 Privet Drive are proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter, indeed. Uh, and now we're just heading right down the pop culture end of the spectrum, just in case any of those uh, books have thrown you. We're moving into the world of movies. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars. Somebody called out Star Trek, deliberately upsetting uh, the Star Wars nerds there. But they are, all, all of them, are gripping beginnings. They kind of capture something of the imagination and the attention and they push you to kind of keep going. Uh, what they're doing, these opening lines, they grip you and they bring you into a world that is being built uh, of characters and places and drama and intrigue and there is a significance and weight to the words themselves and then the works that they introduce you to. Uh, And what happens is we enter into these works, these worlds, and we learn, we grow, we discover, and in doing so, we are changed. Uh, They're gripping beginnings, uh, new worlds, new characters. We are changed by them, and there is no more so profound work than that of the Scriptures that does that very thing drawing us into its world and changing us and shaping us as we learn and grow and discover what is there. So let's pray now. We'll ask for God's help. Then we'll dive into his word in John chapter 1. So let's let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks to us the truth, that it grips us and draws us in and reveals. So we learn and know, but in doing so, we are changed and shaped as a result. So we pray for each of us here this day that would hear you speak and indeed you would change us to be more like your dear son Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, The ancient world, the the time of Jesus, was really uh, a time and place of two powerful cultural forces. Uh, The first of that is the Jews. Uh, They were of the Old Testament, of the laws, the religion and the customs uh, arising out of uh, the Old Testament. And the second kind of cultural force was that of the Romans. Uh, They kind of conquered the known world, including uh, the nation of Israel, and they too had their laws and their regulations, uh, their customs and their military might. Uh, And really the Romans were sort of, uh, they were sort of Italians by heritage, but they're Greek in terms of their thinking. That is, they kind of picked up uh, Greek literature, the Greek language in lots of cases, um, the Greek philosophy. And so there was a Greek sensibility about them. And John writes, knowing these two kind of cultural forces, he writes knowing that these are the two audiences who will hear his work and read it. And he is Jesus' best mate, writing effectively an autobiography of his life. 
And he knows all too well these two cultural forces. And so he begins in a particular way. Uh, Look with me at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. For the Jewish thinkers, the Jewish people, this is the most famous of all beginnings. Uh, It is taken from Genesis 1, chapter 1. It is familiar and hugely significant for them. But in the Roman thinking, this this, uh, start to the gospel would have been controversial in many ways. That is, uh, Aristotle, coming out of the 4th century BC, he wrote of the universe as being eternal. Uh, What scientists later picked up and called the steady state theory of the universe. That is, there is no beginning. The universe was considered to always have been. And so up against that kind of thinking, that worldview, that understanding, Jews and Christians had been scientifically sort of out of favour, derided, really until Einstein and Hubble, who showed that the universe was not steady, but rather it was expanding. And if you kind of you figure out how fast it's expanding, you can do the maths and work out that there was, in fact, a beginning. We call it the Big Bang, you know, not just a, a poor TV show, but a, a scientific theory. Um, and there is a, uh, a Christian Ox- uh, professor at Oxford. He says, if only those scientists before Einstein and Hubble had simply read their Bible, they would have known that there was a beginning. So John starts in the beginning, familiar to the Jews, upsetting and controversial to the Romans. And he continues, in the beginning God. Well, that's actually Genesis 1.1. That's what the Jews were familiar with. That's what they would have been expecting to hear. And really, Genesis 1.1 sets out the great kind of thesis for the whole scriptures, the great truth, the great teaching, the great argument. It is a gripping beginning that the whole Bible then unfolds and unpacks, that in the beginning there is a God. And so the Jewish readers would have expected John to keep going this way, but he instead writes, John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. This would have been surprising. Uh, probably not that controversial for, from Genesis chapter 1. God is a God who speaks. And so the word here is the Greek word, the logos. And logos can mean word, thought, principle, conversation. And the Romans, too, in their thinking, in their understanding, arising out of Greek philosophy, there was the concept of the logos, the word, uh, as a principle, uh, a rational principle that permeates the whole universe. So to both groups, it's familiar, but John then turns it on its head. He blows their minds, and ours as well, as he writes, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Jews, the the Shema, the Lord our God is one. And so as they read this, what is going on? What is John talking about? Is Is he talking about a plurality of gods? And for the Romans, on the other hand, they are convinced of a pantheon of gods. You know, uh, from Jupiter and and uh, Hermes and all these other guys, and, and they just keep adding to their pantheon. And in that, there is chaos and disorder. So here John writes, though, of one God, where there is order and rationality. 
And for us, as we read this as modern day people, we see that it is deep. It is profound. It is, for us, perplexing. It's not an easy beginning. For here we have an insight into the very nature of God. Uh, I happen to have met the author of the material, uh, the word one-to-one material, and it began at a dinner that he was having with a friend. And he had that Oxford professor I mentioned over for dinner and his non-Christian friend over for dinner. And he thought, I'll watch, my, watch the, the professor evangelize my friend. And they indeed do that. They uh, had a few series of dinners and on the third dinner, they were looking at this section from John's Gospel. And the friend, having read this, he said, Do you mean to tell me that there was a beginning? Richard Dawkins doesn't think there was a beginning. Do you mean to tell me that God is not some sort of amorphous mass, but rather that he is noble and personal? Do you mean to tell me that God, as we see here in the beginning, must have been before the beginning, therefore he is eternal? And with those three questions, this man, a, a salesman, you know, who, who ran, um, was known as Golden Tonsils in the insurance industry because of his gift of the gab, after those three questions, he kind of was shocked into silence as I continued to read the beginning of John. See, even to us, it is surprising, it is shocking, it is unexpected, it is perplexing. Some people have wrestled with this and ended up rejecting it, saying, oh, it's just too hard. I don't get it. I don't like it. It can't mean what it says. Others, having read this, have accepted this understanding of God. It's unique in what it says about God. Amongst all the other religions of the world, this depiction, this explanation, this description. You you wouldn't invent it. You wouldn't make it up. No other religion has. Only Christianity argues and explains God in this way. And Christians have uh, um, adopted the term the Trinity, meaning tri, three, and unity, to describe who God is. Uh, You'll need to keep reading the the Gospel of John to encounter the Holy Spirit. But there, what we see as we uh, engage with John is one God, three persons. It's sort of bad maths but good theology. Uh, And this is how we define what is orthodox, what is true Christian teaching. Uh, If you disagree with the Trinity, then you are labelled a heretic. Here it is, right at the very beginning, this gripping beginning of John. Let's keep reading. Verses 3 to 5. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Light, life, darkness, sort of abstract concepts to some degree. Uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, is uh, is described as a prologue or an executive summary, or an overview. And so it raises these ideas. Johnny brings them up for us, and then he spends the rest of his gospel, the rest of his letter, the rest of his book, unpacking and explaining them. Uh, So in regards to darkness, you just need to turn a few pages and you come to Nicodemus, who comes to Jesus at night, in the dark. And he himself is uh, literally in the dark because he comes at night, but also figuratively in the dark. He's ignorant of who Jesus is and what he's on about. 
And this is news. News that spreads. That's what we mean when we use the term gospel. And it's news that Christians have shared. Uh, That's what it means for the light to shine in the darkness. Uh, Christians have taken this news and it's spread out across the whole world. As I said, I was a um, missionary to Fiji. Uh, when I tell people that, they say, well, I, I would quite like to be a missionary to Fiji as well because they picture me you know, lying on a beach, sipping a, a fancy cocktail, and, uh, and people would say to me, it's, it's such a friendly place. If they've been, they say, oh, the people are so friendly. Uh, it's an easy place, people, Australians tend to think of it as. Uh, the reality, as you'll discover, is a little bit different to that. But there is a real sense in which um, it is a lovely place to be and live, but it wasn't always that way. And so the turn of the last century, Fiji was not known as the Friendly Isles, but rather the Cannibal Isles. Uh, they were cannibals eating, killing and eating one another. Uh, what changed? What was the shift from cannibal to friendly? As Christian missionaries. Uh, Christians went and took the gospel to the people of Fiji. Uh, this is the memorial to Thomas Baker, a missionary to Fiji. It's in the, uh, the museum in Suva, and you can go there. There's a picture of him, and you can see there his shoes and his Bible. Uh, the reason his shoes are there is because he was a missionary who was killed and eaten as he took the gospel to the Fijian people. His shoes are there because they were the only part of him that they could not eat. So they remain. Now, he was the only Christian missionary killed and eaten. Uh, The others had great success in in, in many regards. There's still lots of work to do, as the year 13 will find, and as we did as well. Uh, Many who don't yet know Jesus, but the nation, in a sense, was transformed by the light of the gospel. Their old constitution used to describe them being in darkness, coming into the light when the gospel came. That is what The light is being described here. The light shining in the darkness, changing and transforming individuals, societies, cultures. Uh, There are more Christians today than at any other point in history. The light shines in the darkness. Come down with me to verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Maybe up to now, uh, light, darkness, the word, it seemed abstract and impersonal. Uh, That is far from the case, and we see it here, that what is being described here to each of us is deeply personal. What is on offer here is adoption into God's family. Uh, In Australia, we haven't met many Christians who've had the privilege or the opportunity to adopt. It is hard and expensive, we understand that. But when we first went to Fiji, we knew one other family there. Uh, This is them, the Schultz family. And uh, as you can see down the front, uh, their little girl, Jemima, they had adopted her um, during their time there. They work in prison ministry there. And we found that wonderfully encouraging and challenging to us to see how they had taken this one who's from outside, who's unlike them, and drawn her into their family, made her one of their own, poured out their love, their care, their resources upon her. That is what God does for us in the gospel. We are the outsider, drawn in. 
Not because of anything we had done, but because of his love to us. And then that love poured out upon us. It doesn't matter your race, your culture, your background, your language, your deeds. None of those things matter. God himself, though, puts his heart, pours out his love and draws us in. It's interesting to note that of all the religions in the world, they tend to have a racial centre. Wherever they started, that's where they stay. So Islam began in the Middle East amongst Arab people and its centre its center of uh, remains there. Hindus began, Hinduism began in India and so it remains there. So the geographic centre, most, most Hindus where they're found in India. Uh, Shintoism in Japan, it's mainly Japanese people in Japan. But not Christianity. Christianity began in the Middle East and then it moved to Europe. And then Africa now, more Christian. And then it seems that it'll be shifting into China. That is, the gospel transcends race, culture, background. For God is about adopting people into his family, drawing them in. It puts us in a wonderfully privileged position. If you are a Christian, then you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. Uh, it, might, um, it might come as a surprise to you, but if... In the middle of the night, you know, three in the morning, you call me and say, look, I'm a bit thirsty. Can I have a glass of water? You'll get short shrift from me because I don't know you and I'm not doing anything to help you. But if one of my children cries out in the night, will I not help them? Will I not go to them and meet their needs? How much more our Heavenly Father who has adopted us? See, one of the great hallmarks of Christian people is prayer. For we are God's children, and he longs and loves to hear us pray. How can this be? How is this made possible? Verse 14 to 17. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh. Note there the Word became. It's not looked like or appeared to be or resembled. It's not sort of put on like a a flesh suit. No, it's became like us, one of us, fully human and then dwelt amongst us. Roman Greek thinking was that the flesh was weak and evil and you longed to be free of it. Jewish thinking was that the divine could not become human. That would be blasphemous. For us, it can seem strange and bizarre. There's a song a few years ago which said, uh, imagine if God were one of us. As if it was an impossibility, you just couldn't comprehend it. But here what we see in the scriptures, the word became flesh and... We have seen his glory. It seems counterintuitive to us. We think the flesh would hide the glory. No, what we see, the reality, Jesus in the flesh, his glory is revealed and exposes his glory. See, we see Jesus, the eternal, divine, creative, personal word, became flesh. One Singular man. And he reveals God to us. 
He is personal and relatable. That's what the rest of the Gospel of John is about. Story after story, encounter after encounter, teaching and miracle. And he is the most gripping of all figures. He is the focus of the scriptures. And in him, there is a particular focus uh, to him and his work. And we see that down in verse verse 29. Jump down there with me. It's on the screen. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this is the focus of of Jesus and his person and work. The, the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, the lamb is the sacrifice, the substitute to save people from their sins. Right at the beginning of John's gospel, he points to the end. That is Jesus on a cross, dying to sin and for sin. And he does it to save, to save those who are in the darkness, to save them from the darkness. And the end of the gospel, what do we see? We see that the light is indeed triumphant. Death and darkness cannot hold Jesus down, but rather they are defeated and overcome as Jesus is resurrected to new life. And if this is true, and the whole scriptures proclaim it to be true, then it must be hugely significant to all people at all times Everywhere. There's a C.S. Lewis quote. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Is this not true? If Jesus really did die and rise again, is of great, huge, life-changing importance. Now, it wouldn't surprise me, though, if there were some here today who had treated the Bible, treated the gospel as if it was only moderately important. You've sort of left John and the Bible and Jesus, you've left it to the kids. You've left it to others. You've not looked at it for yourself. You've treated the Bible like I treat Dickens and Jane Austen, having read neither A Tale of Two Cities or Pride and Prejudice. I know they're the classics. I know people love them. I know some of you love them. But it's fine for other people, just not for me. Maybe that is you when it comes to the Bible. Let me encourage you to check out Jesus, to read for yourself as an adult the book of John from beginning to end. Uh, Find somebody here who will do it with you. Ask them to meet with you. Uh, John's gospel is described as being shallow enough for a child to swim, to paddle, and deep enough for an elephant to swim doesn't matter where you're at, dive in, start swimming in the book of John. And there's others here who will have swum deep, who will have enjoyed the beauty and significance and the profundity of Jesus. You have been adopted by him. You know him. Here's Packer's quote, J.I. Packer. He says, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. If you are someone who has swum deep, 
If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is that not a wonderful encouragement to you? If you truly know God, he gives you energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. I hope that's been the case for you in your Christian life and for you today. That as we've looked at these opening few verses of John, you have been stirred of heart and of mind and of will, longing to serve him, bold to share him, content in him. So let me encourage you, if that is you, as you leave from here today, why not look to share Jesus? Uh, John, when he writes his gospel, right at the end, he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John is mates with Jesus. He knows Jesus for himself, but he writes the gospel so he might share that good news with others. Why not make that your task or approach? Uh, Maybe God has given you a name this morning of somebody that you could invite to share the Bible with, to use the word one-to-one or whatever tool or resource you want or just the scriptures themselves, whatever helps, whatever works for you. For you know Jesus, you know you've been adopted by him and you long for others to share in that as well. So let's pray and ask for God's help in doing that. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great news of Jesus, profound, perplexing, confronting, controversial as it is, but we pray knowing how deeply personal it is as well, that in Jesus' death and resurrection, you adopt us into your family. You draw us to you and pour out your blessings on us. We thank you for that, for all here who claim the name Christian. And we pray as well that you would indeed give us that energy to serve you, and boldness to share Jesus as well. Lord, help us in that, to be bold, winsome, and winning, as we look to share the good things we've experienced with you, with others who don't yet know you. And in Jesus' great name we pray and ask these things. Amen. Amen.